Welcome to Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude toward religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. I've always said that the C word changes everything. Are you struggling with things in your life today? Money problems, family issues, health difficulties, problems at work. Have you given those things the C word test? You know, cancer. How do your problems stand up to the next call from the doctor? You have cancer. I got that call this week for the first time. Now, I don't need to stretch out the story. It's basal cell carcinoma, which is the most common form of skin cancer. And next week, I'll go in and they'll perform a Mohs procedure on that little mole spot as they get tissues around any cancer there is. And until it's clean, they keep cutting. But it was the C word, and it caused me to pause and check my perspective. The day before, a good friend of mine got the D word. That's a bit more shocking than the C word, dead. I doubt he heard it, but he knew it was coming. My silly head goes back to the games played as a child where you'd run around, you're dead. No, you're dead. No, we don't think much about it. It's just a game until it isn't. My friend is dead for real. Caused me to pause, check my perspective. I laugh when I hear people make the statement, I don't like change, it just isn't true. Of course we like change if it's in the right direction. Your investments have changed to the best position you've ever been in, good change. Your blood pressure is better, good change. Your reputation among your friends is at an all-time high, great change. Change can be great. Psychologists will tell us that deep, real change is almost always preceded by pain. So life has a way of providing that stimulus, that pain, move us along. The ancient Greek philosophers were a lively bunch trying to figure out life and understand change while seeking to discover what was absolute, what didn't change. And then this guy by the name of Heraclitus came along, and he makes me smile. He was given to depression, but he said, what is absolute? Change. Change itself is the one thing we can count on. You can never step into the same river twice. So with that, to bring us down to earth and help us deal with change today, we have a uniquely gifted traveler on this earth. He's the pastor of Bethany Community Church outside Seattle, and it won't quit growing. I call him the reluctant pastor. He's the author of three great books, and you can look him up. But I just want to bring him in right now. His name is Richard Dahlstrom. Richard, welcome to Church Hurts And. Thanks, man. It's really good to reconnect after these years. Uh, good to see you again. Great to be here. Hey, is it unfair to call you the reluctant pastor? You know, you're the outdoorsman. Now you want to be out there. How, how did that come about? First of all, no, it's not unfair at all. I say all the time when sharing my quote-unquote testimony 
God tricked me into becoming a pastor. I mean, that's really literally what happened. I was, I was uh, studying architecture in the 70s. My dad had died, having grown up in the church, kind of gotten depressed. And I said, you know, I'm going to go after making something that'll last when I'm dead so that someone will remember me somewhere. Uh, and so I was studying architecture. I was depressed. I was alone. I'd taken a kind of a vacation from God. And uh, I went off to a ski retreat, kind of in search of the blonde who had invited me, you know, and uh, I wasn't really interested in the content of the retreat, but I got hit upside the head with a two by four, kind of uh, the speaker said, hey, the most important thing you can do with your life is get to know God. I remember praying outdoors after that talk and saying, that's what I want to do. I want to know God. Well, that led me on a journey to change majors uh, from architecture to music. And then uh, I actually worked in music for a while, but had an itch to still know God better. So decided to go to seminary, thinking it would eventuate in my becoming a, uh, a teacher, like at a university or something like that. I had signed up upon graduating from seminary to teach at a Bible college in Alaska, but the job didn't open for six months or so. So a church on a remote island off the coast of Washington State said, hey, we need an interim pastor for six months. I went there. The school, the Bible college, fell onto hard times financially, changed my job description. I backed out of the offer. And the church said, uh, we don't want to search for another pastor. We want you to stay and be our pastor. That was in 1984. And I've been a pastor ever since. And it was never on my radar. So I'm definitely the reluctant pastor. Absolutely true. All right. So you represent the church now. I mean, it's, it's you. You got the stamp on you. And this is church hurts. We're here with people who are honest about the fact that this isn't like a really nice piece of music if you were a musician. I mean, there's a lot of discord. Can you acknowledge that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, 1984 makes this, I don't know, I don't, 36 years I've been doing this now or something like that. I think most of that time, ambivalent is the best word to describe my role uh, within the church. It really started when I was on that island in the 80s. If you'll remember, uh, like televangelists were kind of on the rise and cable TV had just kind of kicked in. And so what was coming down the pike in the news cycle was one after the other, boom, 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 these financial and sexual scandals among these televangelists and TV pastors to the point where one day, literally, I'm golfing in Friday Harbor. I walk into the clubhouse and, you know, it's an island of 3,000 people. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows I'm a pastor. When I walk in, these guys at the bar all stand up and it kind of mockingly, they pull out their wallets and they go, what do you need, pastor? Are you going to build us a tower? Uh, what do you need? Are, you, are, are we going to be cured of cancer if we give you money? And I, I'll tell you, honestly, I wanted to quit right then. And that was the first of probably 100 times in the, in the past 37 years when I felt like, you know what? I don't want to represent this institution because this institution is doing so much harm, and yet I continue to feel called. So, yeah, reluctant is pretty accurate, and I can openly acknowledge the church is filled with shortcomings. 
You know, I told that story a couple of weeks ago and I went right back where you did to the televangelist thing. But reality is that was what was in the newspaper. Would it, but when it came down to the local where the average person lives, you were starting at a time when the ministry was an honored profession. 35 years now, when you say I'm a pastor, what do people think? Well, you know, I, that's a great question. I, I kind of went through this thing where I decided, first of all, I, maybe I should quit and kind of do my own thing. And then I think I read something by maybe Eugene Peterson. I can't remember who, but someone talked about the need to recover the true meaning of words, right? Then I kind of took that on as a project. Maybe my calling isn't to leave but to reframe both the word church and the word pastor so that people can discover that there's an alternative to what the prevailing culture calls a pastor, to what the prevailing culture calls a church. And so I remember uh, I teach overseas a bit and I was in, uh, I was in Italy one time on a train and I was just engaged in conversation with this delightful Italian family who was in the same, you know, booth as me. And we were talking about, pasta and rock climbing the dolomites and some spiritual stuff as well and then finally at the end they asked what i did and when i told them i was a pastor literally they were blown away they said we've never met a pastor uh who's accessible the way you are you seem to we we associate pastor with judgment and fear and control and here we've enjoyed two hours of talking about food and wine and mountain climbing uh and it's just joy it was really refreshing to me and confirming, yeah, this is what we need to do. We need to reframe the meaning of the word pastor, right? So that it becomes once again, what it's intended to be a shepherd, somebody who walks with people through life, who laughs with people, weeps with people, is, is with people in, in, in both the, the peaks and the valleys. And so I enjoy that challenge to this day. Isn't it ironic? You know, we titled this show change absolutes in church. And, and there's a reason for that because of who you are. But it got me to thinking there's an irony to the fact that the church really was kind of the establishment and became synonymous with poorly changing or not changing or changing in the wrong ways. Isn't there something backward about that to begin with? Because the very foundation of what the message of the church is, is about change. Word church is defined often institutionally, right, as this institution that is, uh, in American terms, is a nonprofit or a 501c3 or whatever it is. And institutions have bylaws and institutions have goals and metrics and all of that stuff. And I like to say to people, the real church is existing both within the walls of that institution and outside the walls of that institution. But the real church is not that institution. If, does that make sense? And Jesus said it. He says, hey, listen, if you have uh, fed the hungry and clothed the naked and cared for the least of these among you, then you're serving me, and that's what it means to be the people of God. And so uh, there's people doing that inside the church and outside the church. And I would say when they're doing that, particularly if they're doing that and pointing people to Christ as a source of hope, they're embodying what Jesus was all about. And so the institution is kind of this, I mean, Jesus uses the word wineskin. He says that that you need a wineskin to hold the wine. I get it. But never confuse the wineskin with the wine. And I think so often what happens 
is people are about the wineskin and they're like, how can we make the wineskin bigger? How can we make the wineskin uh, more efficient? How can we make the wineskin better? And I want to just scream, it's about the wine. It's not about the wineskin. So yeah, and, I think and here we get, that's the danger. And here we get the greatest opportunity is this pandemic hits where the church can't meet inside of the brick walls or the stone walls. And it's the greatest opportunity to make that point. But what yep. happens? What happens? It, we freak out instead of saying, wait, do you really think Jesus had any any definition of a church that would look like, oh, go inside those brick walls, sing these hymns, have this kind of music? What in the world? Who cares? Let's be the yeah. church, right? Yeah, no, no, we we were already online. and uh, And then in the wake of this thing, we're like, our viewership has just exponentially increased, actually. In fact, churchbcc.org, if you're interested in, you know, checking that out at some point. But I will say the best stories that are percolating up from my congregants are, are these, like we had drive-through communion this past Sunday where people are driving through the parking lot, they're masked, we're masked, because we just want to hear the stories, you know? And this one couple said, Hey, uh, I missed being in the building with my, you know, my friends and fellow believers. I miss that. But I got to say, uh, I know my, my neighbors better now than ever before. And then he shares this story of this, quote unquote, same sex couple, which from an evangelical perspective, you would always think, oh, there can't be a relationship with this couple. Now they've had this couple like in relationship in their neighborhood. And one of the partners uh, is going in, you used the C word earlier, is going in uh, for cancer treatment. And the other one said, hey, would you come and pray for us? And I love that this is happening more now than it was before, because we're not so tied down with perpetuating the institution. A friend of mine is in London. We've had him on the show a couple of times, and he has a ministry to Muslims and saying he's mm -hmm. getting a lot more people because they don't have to come out. You know, they're actually just able to do it on the computer. And precisely, you know, they have more than their garb over them now. They kind of have the yeah. block. Yeah. So good things are happening. And it's sad to me that churches are so bummed because they can only define themselves as we are who we are because we gather within a building. No, we are who we are, actually, when we're out in the world being what Jesus would say, salt and light when we're when we're doing stuff. And we're actually liberated to do stuff now even a little bit more than we were before. And so that we're, we're trying to kind of say, okay, this is what the wind of the spirit is doing. So let's, let's uh, flow with it. I mean, when you talk about change in your opening, I go back that like the Taoists who said, uh, I mean, Lao Tzu, right? He said, Hey, I wrote what I wrote because I looked at nature, the sun rises, the sun sets, there's winter, there's spring, there's summer, there's fall, People are born, people are strong, people get weak, people die. Everything is constantly changing. And if we can embrace that, we can enjoy fully this present moment for what it is. And that's, I think, part of what Jesus meant when he said, I came that you might have abundant life. He wants to free us from that fear of change so that we can allow the wind of the Spirit to give us joy this very day, this very moment even. You know, I'm a self-identified recovery person. I, I live in recovery, which means I got to the place in my life that I was so messed up that every day 
I have to recommit myself to living mm. a different way. And a huge part of that means distinguishing between problems which are out there right. and problems which are in here. Because I can get all wound up about things I can't change. Totally. And it can really mess you up. And it says, you know what? Give me a drink. Give me something to smoke. Give me something to get yep. angry over. Yep. You know, there's all kinds yep. of ways to bury that. But he said, Jesus says a lot about this, doesn't he? Well, you know, one of the things that seems so profound in this moment is, uh, like, associated with the change word is we're asking the when word. When will we reopen? When will we know the results of the election? When will we have a regime change if you're a Democrat? Or when will we know that we're not going to have a meltdown if you're a Republican and you want to see the same uh, administration running the show? And I'm like this, whatever, like, that's tomorrow, today. Again, to go back to Jesus, Matthew 6, and Taoism even, today, chop wood, carry water, right? I got to get up, put my pants on. And if I can live there in this present moment, enjoying fellowship with Christ and with you in this conversation, tomorrow will take care of itself. And then I don't need that drink because I'm enjoying fully this present moment for what it is. You know, Richard, how do you, how do you have a church you know, close to one of the most liberal colleges in the or universities in the country. Go Huskies, um, by the way. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, you would think you're in this, you know, I mean, just a bound neighborhood. When we first worked together, it was when you were really building a, a new building out instead of being this tiny little little church in the neighborhood that was packing five services, you got another facility and then you've done it again. And then you've keep kept growing. How have you done that in such a context where people would say, really, Seattle? Crazy, <laughs> li crazy liberal university. It's not because you're so liberal. You think in the midst of all this change that there's some things we can't change over. There's some absolutes. That's talk right. To me, yeah. Talk to me about those absolutes. Well, I mean, here's the thing. We say the Apostles' Creed is what holds us together. Our church is uh, non-denominational, and so we say... It's in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And then when people say, well, what are the essentials? We're like this. Yeah, uh, Christ was born. Christ lived. Christ died. Christ rose. Christ desires to live in us. Christ's death makes that possible in some way. But we say all that this way. We believe. We don't say, hey, we have bomb-proof certainty and so we're going to enter in an argument and prove it to you. We say we believe. And then when people ask why we believe, we can point to two or three things. First of all, we can point to evidence. I mean, there's good, there's good evidence that Jesus walked the earth. There's good evidence that he died. There's really compelling evidence uh, that he rose again, as, uh, as Francis Collins, like uh, who's the head of the National Institute of Health, just testified in a speech I heard last week. He said, I'm a scientist. I was an atheist. When I looked at the evidence, I had to come to the conclusion that Jesus did rise from the dead, and I got to deal with that, you know? So there's that evidence. And then to me, still the most compelling evidence is, you know, my own life. I say to people, if Christ wasn't living in me, uh, kind of redeeming my story, that deep depression that hit me when my dad died when I was 17 years old, uh, would have eventuated, I, I believe, in 
a terrible life for me. I, you know, I would have made choices based on comforting and self-medication that would have taken me down a path completely different than the path I'm on now. And I feel uh, a life of contentment and freedom and not perfection by any stretch, but kind of this ongoing journey of transformation that I actually enjoy because I know that God is for me. I have a mantra and my mantra, like when I'm running and when I'm, when I'm awake in the night and I feel myself getting anxious, Paul makes this little prayer in Ephesians 3. He says, I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love. And that's my mantra, rooted and grounded in love. I have a picture of a tree that's in our backyard, a giant fir tree up here in the Pacific Northwest. It's 300 years old. And so it's been there since slavery, right? Since, right, since right. colonialism, since everything. And it's deeply, deeply rooted. And every time I see that tree, I pray, may I be rooted and grounded in love. Because if I'm drawing upon the resources of the infinite, perfect, powerful, loving Christ, and those resources are in me transforming me, I somehow believe it's going to change the way I live. It's going to result in eye contact. It's going to result in generosity. It's going to result in different priorities. And that's a joyous journey. So in spite of all the garbage that is in institutional Christianity, I am excited about that. And I want people to know that. And I think people in Seattle are interested in that, actually. In spite of our liberal reputation, uh, you know, in Ecclesiastes, it says God's placed eternity in everybody's heart. Everybody wants intimacy. Everybody wants beauty. Everybody's in awe of a sunset. These are gifts intended to point us to Christ. Richard, take me outside. You know, I'm sticking you in a room in front of a microphone, but you'd rather be outside. And one of your books is about hiking in the Alps and kind of That's lessons right. you learned now, tell me a story about that. You know, uh, I firmly believe that long before ever there was a Bible, there was already a book that God had written that points people to God. And that book is the book of creation, right? Like it's the Bible reinforces that in several places. But honestly, when I'm in the city and I'm running around this lake that is right near us, uh, near our church, if there's a bald eagle in a tree, everyone's stopping and looking. If there's a spectacular sunset, as there often is, everyone's stopping and looking. It doesn't matter. Are they Muslim? Are they gay? Are they homeless? Are they addicts? It doesn't even matter. Everyone is looking. Now, why is that? And I go, God is preaching right there, and God is wooing, and, and it's a you know, I would almost call it foreplay. It's God's way of saying, hey, come to the bedroom. I've got more to offer you, but this is the way I am. I don't just create a world. I create a lavish, generous, beautiful world. And so, uh, you know, we have a wilderness ministry in our church where we take people out hiking. And now we have a thing called Ancient Paths, where we send people out for a night, overnight in the woods, under a tarp, fasting in solitude. And people come back and they say, it was the best night of my year, you know, because people are, we don't know it, but we're made actually to live in a way where we're receiving that creation book 
and we live these hyper insulated lives. I, I know you're down in Southern California and it's hyper, hyper insulated down there. You know, you're on the freeway, you're in your air conditioned office, you're back on the freeway, you're back in your garage, you're back in your house and you don't hear the birds or see the stars. We need to recover that because God is trying to woo us. Mm. You know, your, um, your work, if people want to know more about your work. They need to go to spirit, body, soul.org. Um, spirit, soul, body. I always spirit, get soul, body. I, I, you know, you know, how many times I type this into my browser wrong because <laughs> I never say spirit, body, soul. Is it spirit, yep. body, soul? Yeah. It's spirit, soul, body. Oh, that's why I couldn't get it. So I have it right here as go. I have it. Spirit, soul, body. Spirit, soul, body.org. Um, yep. But, you know, we're going to have to go. But give our listeners, you know, we've been in, we've been shut down for too long. People are getting nervous, wound up, like this, this may never stop, it seems. Give us an encouraging word before we go, won't you? Yeah, I, I'd be, I mean, I'd be happy to. I, my, I, what I say to people uh, is, you know, we started a thing right after COVID hit because people were stuck at home. And we called it Global Monastery, and it's its own Facebook page now. You can go there and, and sign up if you're interested. But we just offer people like every day, a little five minute, we read a scripture, we say a prayer, and the word is, hey, you're at home, but you don't have to just binge on Netflix. You can use this time to be a blessing to other people. And if you, if you get in that mindset, how can I bless others? I really think that you're going to make it through this in one piece and actually come out on the far side stronger. I've used this time uh, since I can't meet with my staff or my congregation. Just every day I call one person and encourage them. And it's a simple thing. But when I call to encourage somebody else, I'm always encouraged by that. So what step can you take to be a person of hope? Take that step and you'll enjoy the journey. You know, in recovery, that's uh, kind of step 12. And it's funny, we do them in order, but I say, you just can't outgive God. You're hurting. I'd say to people, then what part of you is okay? And if it's 1%, if I get you to give that away, it's that's gonna right. Work, it's going to work, isn't it? It's Thumbs up, baby. A formula that's awesome. from God Himself. Now, yeah. this show began the first week of the Corona shutdown in California. It was strange. Freeways opened up. People looked at each other's as potential carriers with fear in their eyes. Eyeglasses fogged as new mask wearers squirmed to learn how to use them. If I've ever lived in a time where change was so imposed upon people, it has been these last months. Oh, many wine. Even more complain, while others have seemed to embrace it with a passive acceptance, trying not to grind their teeth. Throughout this period, I've been impressed by what an opportunity we may have. Perhaps it's been the chance to think a little more, take an assessment of our life, ponder if we've achieved the ends we were hoping for in the time we've had. I'm blaming it on the virus, but maybe it's just the deliberations that come with my old age. While we reflect then on how church can get it wrong, which drives us back to the words of Jesus to look with fresh eyes at what he said, Remember that he spoke about change from the very beginning of his public ministry. The Greek word was metanoia, a compound word from meta, meaning beyond um, or after, and nous, meaning mind. This is the word Jesus used when he announced that his kingdom was to come in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Now, don't let me lose you. 
Jesus is showing up to the public scene, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You've probably heard that. But you know the word he used, which is translated repent? Metanoia. Now you know it. Beyond, alongside the mind. Right away, Jesus is saying he's looking for change. If you want things to stay the same, if you want to not be bothered, stay away from Jesus. Wrong guy. He shows up. And he says, I want you to change your mind. Get beyond where you are. Don't give up. There is another way. Some Mm. people think Christianity asks you to cut off your head and throw away your mind. In fact, it's the opposite. Change? Yep. But with your mind, meta, beyond the way you've been thinking, get your head screwed on straight. There's a translation which might get our attention maybe be closer to the actual words of Jesus himself. Change, you bet. Great change, absolutely. The kingdom of God. Now, go get your head screwed on straight. It's worth a thought. This is John Bash for Church Hurts End. Well, that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts End. Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial, and finding movement of the divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is the shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchhurtsand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, Church Hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end and enjoy God today, won't you?